Hey there, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Bible in Life podcast. My name is John, and I am grateful for you. Glad you're joining me here on the Bible in Life. My heart, my goal when I launched this podcast was to really provide what I like to call blue jeans theology. And what I mean by that is theology that's rooted in the language of everyday life, in the context of everyday life, so that it can actually help us think through how to follow Jesus right in the midst of our everyday life. And so that's my heart behind it. That's what we're all about. And this podcast, as well as my other podcast called The Listener's Commentary, if you haven't checked that out, that's where I teach straight through books of the New Testament. I've got 16 New Testament books done, just launched the uh, book of Hebrews here recently. And uh, both of these, the Bible in Life and the Listener's Commentary, these are listener-supported crowdfunded Bible teaching efforts uh, that's made possible by the generosity of tons of people. So to those of you who support this ministry, both by your financial contributions as well as your prayers, thanks a ton. Uh, You are the ones that make this ministry go. So thank you for your support. If you have been impacted, have been on the fence, been thinking about it, want to support this ministry, um, you can do that by going to my website, johnwhitaker.net, clicking the Give button, and uh, that'll take you to a place uh, where you can set up a one-time or a monthly recurring donation. Those donations are received in partnership with an organization called World Family Mission. That provides a little bit of financial accountability to me, and they're also a registered nonprofit, so it gives you that tax benefit as well. So if you want to support this work, you can do so right there, johnwicker.net, click the Give button, and you can set up a one-time or recurring donation there. All right, on this podcast, this episode, I am actually going to just address a question. It's a question that's related to some of the things I've been working on myself for other projects, uh, and a question then that just came in uh, via email to me that I thought, man, that's that's worth just exploring and thinking about together. So uh, a listener by the name of Hector So, hi, Hector. Uh, Ask this question. How can Christians justify David's behavior, such as his war crimes, adultery, things like that? He said, I've been asked that in the past. Didn't really have a great answer. How would you answer this question? And I think Hector wanted me both to answer it on the podcast as well as, you know, maybe give him an answer. So I just thought, let's just wrestle with that and explore this question. Um, And here is my basic answer to that. I don't think you need to justify uh, David's behavior or any biblical character's behavior when they do things that are wrong. Um, There's no need to to justify it. There's no need to whitewash it. There's no need to minimize it. Um, In fact, the Bible doesn't even do that. Take one example that uh, was mentioned in the question, uh, David's adultery. Well, what happens as a consequence to that? Well, when you continue reading the story there, it's 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. In chapter 12, Nathan the prophet comes, sent by God, and calls out David um, for his sin. And um, tells a little story, a little parable. David is enraged by the parable, and then Nathan points the figure at him and says, The parable's about you. You're the one who did this. Um, And David owns it. He admits it. He's wrong. He's been caught. He's been convicted. He humbles himself before God. In fact, Psalm 51 is written by David in the wake of Nathan's rebuke. And it's David owning it and talking about his sin and how wrong it was for what he did. 
So listen to some of these words from Psalm 51 from David. Psalm 51 opens with David saying, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your faithfulness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Wipe out my wrongdoings. Wash me thoroughly from my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my wrongdoing. My sin is constantly before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you're justified when you speak. You're blameless when you judge. He goes on and continues to talk about his sin and how it's just so deep and a part of him. He then appeals to God to create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your spirit away from me. Uh, Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully praise and sing of your righteousness. This is a powerful prayer of confession and repentance. It's not David minimizing his behavior. He owns it fully. In fact, he even says towards the end of it, like, God, you don't delight in sacrifice or I would give it. That's not what you really want. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. I mean, this this is where David is at. His heart is broken and contrite because he has been called on the carpet by Nathan the prophet, really from God himself, and he's done wrong and he owns it. And um, and so the Bible doesn't justify David's behavior. David doesn't justify his behavior. He admits it's wrong. And in fact, when you continue reading the story of David's life in the book of 2 Samuel, the way the story of 2 Samuel unfolds is David's kingdom is growing, and it's sort of like the golden years, and he's like the golden child, and he's awesome all up till this moment. And when David sins by taking Bathsheba and committing adultery, Nathan rebukes him. And then in the following chapters of the book of 2 Samuel, what happens is David's kingdom begins to unravel. And now there's more chaos. And uh, there's, even from some of his own uh, sons, there is attempts to take the throne. And so the flow of 2 Samuel shows us how devastating this moment was in David's kingship that uh, things kind of unraveled as a result of it because wrongdoing has consequences. And the Bible doesn't ignore that and doesn't paint that. And this is actually one of the things that I love about the Bible. I, I find very helpful about the Bible. In fact, I think it's one of the things that actually credentials the Bible, gives the Bible some credibility, right? It's not. It doesn't try to whitewash over the, the bad behavior of its heroes. It doesn't try to whitewash over even some of the foolishness of its heroes. This is true in like in the Gospels. When you read the Gospels, the Gospels don't make the apostles look like these bright, shining silver stars. The, the, in the Gospels, the apostles are somewhat foolish and they struggle to get Jesus and they make mistakes all along the way. And I just think that's super, super helpful uh, that the Bible tells the true story rather than whitewashing it to make them look better than they really are. And so when it comes to David and his bad behavior, the Bible doesn't attempt to justify it, doesn't attempt to whitewash it. It calls David out. David himself doesn't justify it. So I I don't think we need to attempt to justify it. And this is part of a a bigger package of things. I mentioned that I was working on some other projects for some other teachings I I was doing. And there are all sorts of things in the Bible that are uncomfortable, that don't make sense. Some of it is just culturally motivated, and we have to own that, right? It's written to a different culture in a different time and a different place. Some of it's culturally motivated. And, and even that's important to acknowledge because it reminds us that um, the Bible enters into, God enters into 
the real world of space and time takes people where they're at and works with them. So when you get the Old Testament law, some of the things in the, the Old Covenant law are just odd or weird or different, but they were culturally important and appropriate in that time period. As one scholar describes the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, that it was God's ways for Moses's days. But it's going to have to, there's going to have to be more revelation. There's going to have to be more teaching. And then you get Jesus and he, he takes us further onto that, right? And he, prophets take us further onto that in the Old Testament. And so some of it is culturally motivated and that's why there's difficult things. But some of it is, there's just things in, in the Bible where God's people don't do what's right. Um, and this reminds us that just because something is in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean it's God's will. Something that's written and recorded in Scripture, in the Bible, that doesn't in and of itself make it God's will. David's behavior isn't God's will. It's wrong. That's why he's called on the carpet for us. There are things in the Bible that are descriptive, but not prescriptive. What do I mean by that? I mean, they describe what happened but they don't prescribe what's supposed to happen. They don't tell us, this is God's will. This is what God wants. Do this. Imitate this person. That's very true in biblical narrative. Uh, we're not always supposed to imitate the biblical characters. We're supposed to learn from them, but we're not supposed to always imitate them. They sometimes do wrong. And the lesson we're supposed to learn is don't do that. Don't be like that. And that's the case here in with David and some of his bad behavior. There are certain things David does where it's like, ah, oh, we should learn from that. That's a good example. But these are often descriptive uh, stories that don't prescribe God's will. They just describe what happened. And sometimes when those characters do wrong, we are to learn the opposite lesson. Don't be like them. And so just because it's written in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean it's God's will. Another important principle to think about in this regard is that um, we live on the other side of Genesis 3. That means we live outside of Eden. We live post-fall. And outside of Eden, post-fall, humankind, even humankind who has been called by God and serving God, humankind does not fully embody God's ideal. And so, as I mentioned, God, therefore, takes people where they are at and starts working with them. And so, uh, in the Old Testament law, you'll find a lot of laws about slavery, for example. The reality is, is slavery is not God's ideal. But in the ancient Near Eastern culture, in which Moses and the uh, early Israelites lived, slavery was rampant and everywhere present. And when you read the instructions of the Old Testament law in their ancient Near Eastern context about slavery, you actually see that what the Old Testament law is doing is countercultural. It's actually providing protections and policies and provisions to make them the best they could in their cultural context of a bad situation, of something that was less an ideal. And so slaves uh, under uh, the law of the Old Testament had more rights and more protections than slaves anywhere else in the ancient Near East. Does that make slavery God's ideal? No, it's not God's ideal. And yet there are places in the Old Testament and as well in the New Testament um, that helps us realize that slaves are people too. 
uh, that was like incredibly countercultural. First place, uh, first time in all of literature where slaves were spoken of in that regard is in the Old Testament, in the Bible. And so it's less than God's ideal. It's taking people where they're at. And let's say, let's move forward. And you can watch this unfold. And so by the time you get to the New Testament, we've moved even further forward in that context. Um, and the New Testament is working to transform slavery from the inside out, uh, transform the heart of the people involved so that the slave works for his slave owner, slave master, as he would for Jesus out of love and honor and respect. But the slave owner is specifically told, don't threaten him. He's your brother. You have a master in heaven. And so the master is given a demotion and both of them are treated as equal human beings before God. And this is unique in ancient literature. And so we live outside of Eden. And that means that uh, some of the things written in scripture, well, they're just not God's ideal. They're not the way it is. God's trying to take a less than ideal situation and work towards the good of humanity within it. Um, we see this, for example, in Mark chapter 10, verses 2 through 9. It's a question about divorce and remarriage uh, that the Jewish leaders ask Jesus. They're basically inviting him to weigh in on their question, their debate. And Jesus responds to their question with a question of his own. Well, what did Moses command you to do? They reply and say, well, Moses didn't command us to do anything, but he permitted a person to give a certificate of divorce. And the question really is, on what reasons, right? And then Jesus says, yes, Moses permitted that because of your hardness of heart, but from the beginning, it hasn't been that way at all. And he goes clear back to God's ideal pre-Genesis 3, all the way to the beginning when God first made man and woman. In other words, uh, divorce was motivated because of your sinfulness. So that provision in the law was given um, in order to deal with a less than ideal situation. But here's what God's ideal was, and he goes clear back to Genesis chapter 2. Um, we, that's where we live. We live outside of Eden, and human beings don't fully embody God's ideal. And as a result, some of the things that God says, and even some of the instruction God's give, is trying to take humans where they're at and hopefully eventually help them move closer and closer to his ideal. So all of that, to come back to the question at the start of this, all of that's to say that when it comes to the wrong behaviors of God's people, in the case of this question specifically David, or whoever, Abraham, or the Israelites in total, or right whoever it is, when it comes to some of the things in Scripture that we know from the clear teachings of Scripture is contrary to God's will and intention, we don't justify those behaviors. We admit them. He should not have done this, right? And we, uh, we acknowledge and just say, as Scripture itself does, David was wrong, and he shouldn't have done that. Um, and God's people, when they do wrong, it's wrong. They shouldn't have done that. We don't have to whitewash it. We don't have to clean it up. We don't have to justify it. We own it. Just like when we do wrong, we own our wrong as well. We confess it, and we acknowledge it. And if we confess our sins, Scripture tells us, 1 John 1, 9, that God is faithful and he is just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that, my friends, that's good news. Because which one of us has not done wrong? It's not just David. It's not just Abraham. It's not just people recorded in the Bible. Which one of us has not done wrong? We've all done wrong. And if we deny it, if we say we have no sin, if we minimize it, 
and it's going to come back to bite us and it's going to eat us up. But if we confess our sins, God is gracious and merciful. He washes us clean from our sins and then restores us to walking in the paths of righteousness. And that's some good news for each and every one of us. So, Hector, there's my answer to your question. Hope that's helpful to to each of us as we read the scriptures and try to handle what's really there in the text and just deal with the text as it presents itself to us. Hey, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Bible and Life podcast. I hope you have a great week as you walk with God and you serve him humbly and faithfully and honestly. Take care. I look forward to talking to you again next week.